0: Parsha's Sveitzeh contains a weighty 148 verses, we are going to be following the storyline of Jacob exclusively. At the end of last week's Parsha, Jacob usurped the blessings from his brother. He found out his brother wants to kill him. He's told by his mother and then his father to go travel to Haran, to the home of Rebecca's brother Laban, marry one of his daughters, settle down there until things quiet down on the home front. And the parasha begins that Jacob leaves Beersheba. he leaves the home where his parents are, and he travels to Haran. And this journey is quite memorable, because he stops along the way in the place. Whenever the Torah says the place, it doesn't tell us which place it is, it's a reference to Temple Mount, to Mount Moriah, to the place where both temples stood, where the third temple is going to stand, The plateau held up by the Western Wall in Jerusalem. He stops there overnight. He spends the night there. He gathers some stones from the area, places it around his head, and he goes to sleep. And he has a very memorable dream. In the dream, he sees a ladder that's rooted in the ground, but the head of the ladder is in heavens, and there's angels of God going up and going down the ladder. And he has a prophecy And God appears to him in the prophecy, and he says to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, the land upon which you are sleeping, i.e. the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, is going to be yours for you and for for your descendants. So this is the third time we have the pledge. The pledge was given to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And the Almighty continues, your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. You will spread in all directions. And all the nations of the world will be blessed through you and through your descendants. And this, again, is a repetition of the blessings that were originally given to Abraham, repeated to Isaac, and now a third time to Jacob. And the body continues, verse 15. And behold, I will be with you. I will guard you in all that you do. I will return you to this land. You're going now to Haran. You're going to spend some time. In Laban's home, I'll bring you back. I won't abandon you. I'm going to fulfill my pledges to you. So there's a few things here to, to analyze. First of all, why is Jerusalem, why is Temple Mount called the place? And it's not identified as Jerusalem by name. There's all kinds of other names given to Jerusalem, to Mount Moriah, to Temple Mount in the Torah. But Jerusalem is not one of them. So, interesting question. The Rambam gives several answers. Number one, he says that if the Gentiles knew the location upon which God was planning to build the temple and be the epicenter of the Jewish people, then A, they would have destroyed it. B, they may have had bloody wars over it. And C, most importantly, the tribes of Israel would have had a war over which tribes are going to have Jerusalem in their portion. And therefore, in order to forestall a potential civil war, because every tribe is going to want to have Jerusalem in their portion, the Almighty did not reveal it until much, much later, until the times of David, hundreds of years after the Exodus. And of course, ultimately, it ends up in the tribe of Benjamin's portion. So Jacob arrives in this place and he spends the night. And Rashi tells us that he prayed in this location, And specifically, he instituted the evening prayer. This is a little bit interesting. You know, Jacob is fleeing from his brother. He's about to travel to the unknown world. And he stops at night and he institutes the evening prayer. And I think this reveals the essence and the power of the evening prayer. In Talmudic literature, our world, or certainly our world when we are, quote-unquote, in exile, is considered a world of darkness. You know, Jacob is now escaping. He's absconding from his homeland. His brother wants to kill him. He's about to engage in a very treacherous relationship with his future father-in-law. And you could maybe argue that this is a period of darkness for him in his life. And amidst the darkness, amidst the despondency, he invents, he institutes the evening prayer, the power of which is to infuse life and hope into a very dark world. And Rashi points out uh, a little bit of a nuance here, uh, that when Jacob finally goes to sleep that evening, he takes stones from the place and puts them around his head. Rashi points out a little bit later on, Jacob's going to wake up, and the word in the Torah to describe the stones is now singular. He takes the stone. So somehow, overnight, the stones, the plural, the multiple stones that Jacob placed around his head transformed into one stone in verse 18, where Jacob takes the stone that he put around his head and he pours oil in it makes it into an altar. Rashi tells us something very fascinating, that he had placed 12 stones around his head, but in the middle of the night, the stones started fighting, jostling with each other. Each one of them was saying, well, this righteous Jacob, he should lay on me. And the other stone was saying, no, he shall lay on me. And the Almighty made a miracle and fused the 12 stones together, made one big stone. Very interesting imagery here that were shown by Rashi about what happens to Jacob's improvised pillow. Now, the Ramchal, the great Jewish philosopher and ethicist of the 18th century, he tells us something very interesting. He says... That when people are spiritual, then they uplift the world around them and make it spiritual too. You have these rocks. They're ordinary. They're regular rocks. And suddenly they're worried about the spiritual ramifications of upon whose head Jacob is going to lean. Because of the holiness of Jacob, wherever he went, even the things that were previously mundane, they were uplifted and made Spiritual. Just an interesting idea here that we see. Now, one of the commentaries asked an interesting question. After all, all these stones were fighting, each one of them wanted to have Jacob rest his head upon that stone. So, what they might do, they might fuse the stone into one big stone. Well, how does that solve the problem? Even though they're all one stone, Jacob has to have his head on one part of the stone. And therefore, the competition. The fighting between the stones should continue. And the answer is that when there's unity, once all the stones have been fused together, then there's no competition, which is, of course, a very valuable idea that the only reason why the stones were initially jostling and fighting and competing to have Jacob lie on them is because they were distinct. They view themselves as being distinct. Once they're together, once it's one big amalgamated stone, everyone's happy even if Jacob has a different part of the stone. But if it's all part of one thing, then there's no fighting. Now, if you read the verses critically, you'll notice that Jacob heads towards Haran, towards the house of Laban, and then suddenly he decides to end up in a different place, to end up and spend the night in Temple Mount. Rashi tells us actually how he ended up there. Initially, he went past Temple Mount and was already in Haran. And then he stopped and he reflected. And he said, I made a mistake. Abraham, he prayed on Temple Mount. Isaac prayed on Temple Mount. And I never went to pray there. So he turned around and he was inspired to go back to Temple Mount and to pray, and the Almighty made a miracle that the way was expedited, that he was able to fast-forward his way to get there really quickly. So there's two interesting points here that Rashi is conveying. Number one, that the Almighty didn't give him this inspiration. He initially passed by Temple Mount, he didn't think about stopping there, and the Almighty didn't stop him. Because if someone is not personally inspired to do something, then the Almighty is not going to inspire them. However, once Jacob makes the first step to say, oh, I made a mistake. I should have stopped there. I should have prayed. He turns around and heads back to Temple Mount. The Almighty will help expedite it. And as a result, he got all these amazing eternal blessings. The Almighty tells him he's going to watch him and guard him, and he'll proliferate in all different directions. He'll have the land of Israel. His descendants will be like the dust of the earth. It's possible that had Jacob not been inspired to turn around and say, I should go there and I should go pray, he would not have gotten all those amazing eternal blessings for him and for the Jewish people. And the Torah stresses that his prophecy was amidst a dream. And by my count, there's 11 dreams in Genesis, and each one of them are prophetic. Now, the Talmud tells us that, in general, dreams may have a smidgen, an inkling of prophecy. It's one-sixtieth by the Talmud's calculation. The average dream is still one-sixtieth of prophecy. But the Rambam tells us something very interesting. He says that all prophets only experience prophecy in a dream-like trance. All prophets, with the exception of Moses, are not fully awake, when they absorb the prophetic message. And the idea behind that is very powerful. When you are going to communicate with God, you're not talking to God via your body. It's your soul that's capable of prophecy. And the body, in fact, is an inhibitor. And therefore, the only way to batter through the resistance of the body resisting prophecy is that it needs to be lulled into sleep to become unaware of its surroundings and allow a window, a void through which the soul can have its prophecy with God. And the nature of the prophecy is that he sees a ladder, and the ladder's roots are in the ground, but its head, its top, is in the heaven, and there's all kinds of homiletic interpretations here to this path to greatness that's evident in the ladder. So just to share a few of these ideas, number one, that our ascent to spiritual greatness is modeled after a ladder, like we're climbing to heaven one rung at a time. With each step, with each movement towards God, towards the heaven, we get the opportunity to move on to the next step. And so on. And of course, we don't try to jump too many steps at once. If you try to conquer the whole ladder at once, you'll fall down, you have regression. That's one idea. Another idea we'll find in the more Kabbalistic sources, that a ladder is modeled after the soul. You know, we have a soul in our body. And that essentially means that the soul is rooted to the ground, to the earthly world. It's bound to the body. But like the ladder, like this ladder in Jacob's dream... Part of the soul is still in heaven. Its roots, its spiritual roots are from above. And the soul is kind of straddling both worlds. Its homeland, its origin is in the spiritual world. And it is drawn into our physical body. One more idea from this ladder. You know, Jacob sees in the ladder angels going up and angels going down. And these two are the models of our pursuits of greatness. There's the angels going up and then there's angels going down. We could take the holiness and draw it from above, like the descending angels. We have angels from heaven and we bring them down to us. That's one model of achieving greatness. And then there's a second model, which is the angels going up, the ascending angels, to uplift what is low, to take what is here and bring it up. Alternatively, there's to take what's up and bring it down. So Jacob wakes up after this amazing dream and these amazing prophecies. And he realizes the seriousness and the holiness and the hallowedness of this place. He gets frightened. He says that had I known that this place was a place of holiness, I wouldn't have gone to sleep there. And he labels it the gate of heaven, the Shar ha the entrance for heaven. Says Rashi something very fascinating. Prayer in order for it to go to heaven, has to first travel to Israel, to Jerusalem, to the Temple Mount, and that is the portal to heaven. If someone prays in Houston, Texas, or in Canada, or in Hawaii, their prayer has to travel to Israel, to the gates of heaven on Temple Mount, and only from there could it go up to heaven. Jacob wakes up in the morning, he takes the stone that was around his head, The improvised pillow, he makes it a pillar, he pours oil on it. He renames the place Beth-el. The Talmud points out that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob each had a name for this location. Abraham called it a mountain. Isaac called it a field. Jacob called it a house, a home, says the Talmud. Abraham's name refers to the first temple. Isaac's name refers to the second temple. And Jacob's name, the house, the permanent temple is referenced by Jacob. Jacob makes a vow, if God will be with me, he'll guard me on this way that I'm going, he'll give me bread to eat and clothes to wear. All Jacob asks for is the minimum, all he wants is clothes, is clothes to wear, and bread to eat. And I return in peace to my father's house, and Hashem will be a God to me. Then this stone, which I have set up as an altar, shall become a house of God, and whatever you shall, you will give me, I shall tithe it to you. Like Abraham before him, Jacob dedicated himself to tithing, to giving 10% of what he has from God back to God in charity. Now, the nature of this vow is somewhat unusual. God promises to be with Jacob, to guard him, to bring him back. And then Jacob says, you know what? If God will do that, then I pledge to tithe, which seems to imply that it's possible for God To not keep his word, if God will keep his word. Meaning that it it is feasible for God to not keep his word. Well, how's that so? Of course God's going to keep his word. So the Rabban, in his comment here, says something kind of scary. He says that the reason why Jacob made this vow, this promise, this pledge, this condition, is because it's possible for God to not keep his word if people sin meaning that God's promises are contingent upon us doing our job. If we don't do our job, then God is absolved from his responsibility, which, of course, is a a terrifying idea. Chapter 29 begins with Jacob leaving Temple Mount and heading to east and arriving in the hometown of Laban, his uncle. And he arrives to town and he sees a well. And behold, there's three flocks of sheep, beside the well and they're all waiting to have enough herdsmen enough shepherds come to the well because on top of the well there's a huge stone and they can't get any water to give water to their flocks until the stone is rolled off and therefore they're just sitting around loitering around waiting for more people to come to uncork the well and Jacob reaches out to them And he says to them, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran. Do you know Laban, my uncle? He says, we know him. How's he doing? He's doing well. His daughter, Rachel, is about to come together with the flock. And Jacob muses to them, I don't understand. You're just sitting around here loitering, waiting for something, obviously. But it's the middle of the day. Why are you not tending to your flock, grazing with them? Why are you sitting around here doing nothing? And they respond. We can't, we have to give our flock water, but we can't do it because there's the huge rock, the huge stone on top of the well. We're waiting for enough people to come to roll it off. Now it's kind of interesting because last week we had another episode with the wells, the wells that Isaac dug, the three wells. And here we see another very long and almost tangential story here where Jacob is now meeting with the well and there's three flocks waiting for the water to be on court. Very strange episode. And again, the Ramban explains that this is a reference to the temples. The well, well, that's the temple. The three flocks, the three shepherds with their flocks, are a reference to the three festivals. There's three festivals when all of Israel goes to the temple in a pilgrimage. The water that's in the well is the experience of drawing holiness from the temple, on the, f- the festivals and the stone, well, that means that, that there's three times a year where the water is available for everyone and then after the festival's over, it gets covered with a proverbial stone. You have to wait until next festival. So again, we see how the commentaries show us a deeper layer in what seems to be incidental episodes of the forefathers in Genesis that it's really referencing to very important ideas that are relevant to the whole nation. Now, when Jacob starts rebuking them, he says to them, you know, what are you doing here? Why are you just loitering? Rashi tells us something very important. Rashi says that Jacob tells them, I don't get it. If you're being hired by the owner of the flock, then it's your responsibility to make sure that you do a complete day's work. It's, it's inappropriate for you to, to be hired to do a job and not execute responsibilities faithfully. And this seems a little bit odd. You know, Jacob arrives in town and he meets people and he asks a few preliminary questions and right away begins to seemingly attack them. He's saying, what are you doing? You're being dishonest. What's going on over here? So the commentaries explained that Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, these people are totally intolerant of evil and of dishonesty and therefore if Jacob sees something that he finds is inappropriate it's improper for him to sit back and to absorb it and to be complacent he has to react and right away he says to them don't be dishonest if you're being hired for a job do your job as he is speaking to the herdsmen Rachel arrives she was a shepherdess working for her father Jacob sees her And he sees the flock of Laban, his uncle. He right away runs over to the well, pushes off the stone with his own hands. He was obviously very strong. And he gives water to the sheep of Laban, his uncle. He walks over to Rachel, his first cousin. He kisses her. He starts crying. And he tells Rachel that we're first cousins, we're relatives. He is Rebecca's son. And she runs and tells her father. Why does Jacob cry when he sees Rachel? So Rashi gives us two reasons. Number one, because Jacob foresaw prophetically that he's going to marry Rachel, but he's not going to be buried next to her. In the cave that we spoke about two weeks ago, Jacob's going to be buried himself, but his other wife, Leah, Rachel's sister, is going to be with him buried next to him. Rachel's going to be buried somewhere else. And therefore, he starts crying about that because he's not going to be buried next to her. And this seems a little bit unusual. You know, Jacob meets his wife for the first time. And the only thing he thinks about, or one of the first things that he thinks about, is the very distant future when they're going to be buried. He's not going to be buried together. So even though Jacob's able to understand things prophetically and be able to see the future to a certain degree, it seems odd that the very nascent stages of the relationship, he just met her, he's already worried about where they're going to be buried. It seems kind of unusual. And perhaps the answer is that according to Jewish philosophy, marriage is an eternal union. It's a union that's not only a bond of the husband and wife while they are alive. It's a package deal. Even once they pass, even once they move to the spiritual world, husband and wife are together. So for example, in a few weeks we'll read about Joseph Jacob's son, and the wife of Potiphar, a woman that tries to seduce him. And Rashi there tells us he refuses on two fronts. He doesn't want to be with her in this world, and he doesn't want to be with her, bound up to her, for eternity. Meaning that the relationship of husband and wife transcends the relationship in this world and really is eternal. Jacob sees, prophetically, that he's not going to be buried next to what he thought was his soulmate, Rachel, and that indicates that their union won't be complete, and therefore he is saddened. Alternatively, Rashi tells us, the reason why Jacob was crying is because he came empty-handed. Two weeks ago, we read about Eliezer, who was the servant of Abraham. He comes to court Rachel, and he brings all kinds of jewelry. And here Jacob comes with nothing. Why did Jacob come empty-handed? So Rashi says something very fascinating. Eliphaz, the son of Esau, was sent by Esau to go murder Jacob. So Jacob was laden with all kinds of jewelry, and Eliphaz comes, and upon the instruction of his father, is about to kill Jacob. But Eliphaz was very disturbed by this. He didn't want to kill his uncle Jacob. But he was between a rock and a hard place. On one hand, he didn't want to kill his uncle Jacob. On the other hand, his father Esau told him to go kill him. So what did he do? So Jacob came up with a loophole, with a solution. He says, and this is recorded in the Talmud, if someone is poor, if someone is destitute, well, then it's considered as if they're dead. On a certain, a certain level, they, they are lacking life. And therefore, Jacob advised him, take all the money that I have, take all the jewelry that I have, and then it's considered as if I'm dead, and therefore you, I'm still alive, but you could go tell your father, you know what, I killed him on a certain level and that's what happened and therefore jacob arrives and he's penniless and he's sad because he wasn't able to offer to his prospective bride rachel what he believed she deserved one of the commentaries suggests something very interesting jacob's crying because he doesn't he's not rich or he's penniless is that something that someone like jacob should really be worried about why is he so disturbed that he's coming empty-handed. And the suggestion was that, you know, Laban and Rebekah, these are two siblings living not only in opposite sides of the world, but on opposite sides of the spiritual spectrum. You have the idolatrous family, Laban's family, and you have the religious, the, the monotheistic family of Rebekah in Israel. Jacob is worried that people will have a certain stigma about the people who are more religiously inclined, more monotheistic, that they're, they're not successful. They're not able to carry their weight. And they're poor. They're, they're, they don't have their affairs in order. That is a certain criticism that could be levied and maybe still is today levied on the people that are more focused on the spiritual world, but they're not put together they don't dress well they they're not financially adept that that's a that's a common criticism even today jacob was worried about the implications of that criticism this idea that he could be maligned for his arriving empty-handedness and what that may say in the eyes of the onlookers about what living in a more spiritually inclined world does to you it's like you have to forfeit and Jacob's no you don't have to forfeit Isaac is the most spiritually advanced person in the world and the richest person in the world and that's really the way it it could be maybe it ought to be you don't necessarily forfeit anything substantial really by embracing the spiritual world. in the end you have it all when Jacob was not able to demonstrate that he was saddened and he cried about the misconceptions that could be drawn from from that reality Laban hears that Jacob is there, he runs out to him, he greets him, he tells him, you're my flesh and blood, come stay with us for a month, and he said, okay, I want you to work for me, but I want to pay you, what should I pay you? And Laban had two daughters, Rachel we already met, Rachel had an older sister, Leah, as well. Jacob loved Rachel, and he offered, Laban, I will work for you for seven years, For Rachel, your younger daughter. Rashi explains that Laban had a reputation of being somewhat dishonest. And therefore, when Jacob identifies the woman he wants to marry in exchange for seven years of work, he's very specific. Rachel, your younger daughter. If he just said Rachel after seven years of hard work, Laban might find the neighbor, Rachel, and give her as a wife for Jacob. If he said, your daughter, Rachel, well, then maybe Laban would go to the DMV and do a name change and change Leah's name to Rachel and give him Leah, who's now called Rachel. Therefore, he said, Rachel, your daughter, the younger one. Jacob instituted all kinds of safety measures to prevent fraud, and in the end, it didn't work as we shall see. So the deal was struck, Laban agreed, and Jacob worked for seven years in exchange to marry Rachel, and he loved her so much that those seven years flew by. Seven years later, Jacob says to Laban, I have fulfilled my term, give me my wife, I want to marry Rachel. So Laban makes a huge party. And in the evening, he does a switcheroo. He takes Leah, his older daughter, and puts her under the veil as the bride. And Jacob marries her, not realizing that it is Leah, not Rachel. Laban gives his daughter Leah Zilpah, a different woman who is a maidservant, Later on, we find out that Zilpah was young and she was part of the ruse because she was really supposed to be the maidservant that's supposed to go together with Rachel. And in the morning, Jacob wakes up and he finds out that he's married to Leah instead of Rachel. So he runs over to Laban and says, this is not fair. What have you done to me? I worked for you for seven years for Rachel. Why did you deceive me? And Laban says, well... Our policy, our custom is that first the older daughter gets married and then the younger daughter gets married. And therefore, it was improper for me to give you Rachel before Leah is married. However, says Laban, I'll give you Rachel as well, but you have to work for me for for an additional seven years. So we see already that Jacob had cause for concern. He knew that Laban was very deceptive. And indeed, Laban seemed to have overcame the safety measures that Jacob instituted, and he snuck Leah instead of Rachel as a wife for Jacob. Jacob agreed to these new terms, and he married Rachel, and Rachel was given Bilha, a second maidservant, and now Jacob is married to two of his first cousins, two sisters, Rachel and Leah. And he works for an additional seven years after he marries Rachel. He wasn't willing to work ahead of time. He didn't trust Laban. He took, now he's married to the second daughter, Rachel, as well. And he's going to work after that, after the wedding, after he's married to both sisters, he'll work to pay up for his rights to marry Rachel. So there's a lot to unpack here. For one, I think we can maybe make a speculation. You know, last week's parsha, it was Jacob engaging in deception. He was the one who acted as one brother instead of a different brother. He masqueraded, he disguised himself as his older brother. And maybe that boomeranged back at him in a deception that was done to him where again, two siblings were swapped and one was passed off for the other, which is just an interesting idea in general. But one question could be asked is that you know, how is it really possible for Jacob to not have picked up on the ruse? How is it possible that he didn't realize that the woman he was marrying is indeed Leah, not Rachel? So there's a few answers to this question. I think the simple answer is, is that just like Jacob and Esau were twins – Rachel and Leah were twins too. So they might have looked kind of similar. And maybe also one of the commentaries suggests that Laban made a big feast. Maybe there was alcohol that could have influenced Jacob's ability to perceive what was happening. Rashi says something very interesting. Rashi says this teaches us the modesty of Jacob. Even though he was living with his family for seven years... He wasn't fraternizing with the girls until he married them, and therefore he was so removed from them that he didn't notice that indeed he was marrying Leia and not Rachel. Rashi also tells us something very fascinating. Rashi says is that Jacob instituted another fraud prevention measure. He gave a secret code to Rachel. And he said to Rachel, this is the code, and I want you to share this code with me under the wedding canopy, just so I should know for sure. It's like two-factor authorization, just so I know for sure that you are Rachel, and I'm not sharing the code with anyone else. In the middle of the wedding, Rachel sees that is being sent to the wedding canopy, and she is totally unaware of the secret code, and she is now about to be subject to a Terrible humiliation in front of everyone. So she runs over to Leah and she tells her the secret code. And therefore, under the wedding canopy, Jacob asks for the code. And Leah, having been informed of the secret code by her sister, Rachel, she responds with the code. And therefore, Jacob was assuaged that indeed he got the right one. And this shows the tremendous self-sacrifice of Rachel, she was willing to forfeit the love of her life. The man that she had hoped to build the Jewish people together with, she had forfeited that in order to prevent her sister from shame. The Talmud tells us something very striking. It's preferable for someone to throw themselves inside a fiery furnace, to kill themselves in effect, to not whiten the face of their fellow Publicly, To avoid shaming someone else, you're even supposed to maybe even kill yourself. Rachel was so concerned about the shame of her sister Leah, even if it meant giving up everything, she conveyed the secret code to her sister. Jacob finds out about what happened and he says to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? It's remarkable how Jacob had a very measured reaction. He didn't throw chairs. He didn't raise his voice. He didn't get angry. This is a superhuman response to the grand deception that Laban perpetrated. And in the end, Jacob agrees to the terms set forth by Laban. He'll marry both sisters. And he'll work for an additional seven years, even though it was Laban who had reneged upon the contract of giving Rachel as a wife after seven years of work. Now, there's a technical problem at play here. By Torah law, a man is not allowed to marry two sisters simultaneously if they're both alive. If a man marries one sister and that sister dies, he's allowed to marry her sister subsequently. But if the first wife is still alive, he's not allowed to marry the second wife. And we know that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Talmud tells us, they observed all of Torah. So how did Jacob marry two sisters? So there's many answers to this question. The Ramban we've mentioned in the past tells us that Jacob observed all of Torah so long as he was in the land of Israel. Now he is in Haran. He's outside of the land of Israel. He didn't observe all of Torah. And therefore, it was Rachel, when the, when they were about to re-enter the land of Israel, it was Rachel who died because she was the one who encroached upon the prohibition of marrying two sisters. She was the one who married Jacob second, and therefore, she was the one who had to die when he was about to enter Israel. That's what the Ramban says. There are many other answers to this question. I want to share just one of them uh, brought from the Kassav Sofer. He says that a person is not allowed to marry two sisters, but this is the only one that after the death of one of the relatives, he's allowed to marry the other one. And he proves that the reason why the Torah does not allow one man to marry two sisters is because those two sisters will become rivals and they'll fight over who gets more attention, more love from their husband And therefore, once one of the wives dies, one of the sisters die, it's okay for him to marry the second sister. And here, Rachel is demonstrating tremendous self-sacrifice for her sister, tremendous selflessness for her sister by giving her the codes. Jacob was sure that there was sisterly love between the two. And he wouldn't encroach on this problem, that these sisters won't be at each other's neck. And therefore, he felt comfortable, again, because it was prior to Sinai, prior to the Torah being mandatory, he felt comfortable marrying two sisters, given the conditions that existed in that family. So now Jacob is married to Rachel and to Leah. He works for another seven years to marry the second sister. Rashi tells us that Jacob displayed tremendous integrity, that he worked with the same dedication in the first seven years as he did with the second seven years, even though it's only via Laban's deception that he ended up having to work for a second seven years. Leah is not as loved as Rachel is, and therefore the Almighty opened up Leah's womb. She's very fertile but Rachel remains barren. Leah has four sons in quick succession, Reuben, Shimon, Simeon, Levi, Levi, and Judah. And Rachel has zero children. In each one of these four children, she names the child based upon the feelings that she's having and the appreciation that she's having for what this creates in the family. And she names, for example, Judah, the word Yehuda means appreciation or thankfulness, and she's thankful to God that she has a fourth son, and therefore she names him Judah. The Talmud tells us that until Leah thanked God for having a child when she named her fourth son Judah, there was no one that had that same level of appreciation for God, In history, chapter 30 begins where Rachel sees that she doesn't have any children and her sister is having many children, and she becomes envious and she tells Jacob, Give me children, otherwise I am dead. Simply stated, Rachel was envious of the fact that her sister Leah had children and she did not. Rashi tells us something very fascinating. Rashi says, that Rachel was envious of her sister. She was envious of her sister's good deeds that resulted in her being meritorious in having children. This, Rashi's revealing to us a different understanding in, in the Torah. That the envy was not just simple base envy. Rather, it was envy of the spiritual deeds that resulted in Leah having fertility. So Rachel tells Jacob, You have to pray for me. Ultimately, Rachel takes her maidservant Billa, and gives her to Jacob. They have two children together. Leah sees that she stopped having children. So she takes her maidservant Zilpah and also gives her to Jacob as a wife. And she also has two sons. So the final tally is that Jacob has four wives. Rachel, Leah, Bilhah, and Zilpah. And thus far, he has eight sons, four from Leah and two apiece from Bilhah and Zilpah. And then we read the story about the Dudaim. These Dudaim are some sort of herbs or spices that were believed to help contribute towards fertility. Reuben, the oldest son of Jacob, the oldest son of Leah, he goes out in the time of the, of the wheat harvest. He finds these dudaim, these aphrodisiacs or some other sort of herbs in the fields, brings them to Leah, his mother. And Rachel says to Leah, please give me some of your son's dudaim. Give me some of these herbs or plants that could contribute towards fertility. So Leah responds in a very surprising way. She said to her, was your taking my husband Insignificant, and now you take even my son's dudaim. And Rachel responds, therefore he should lie with you tonight in return for your son's dudaim. So, so Leah's reaction to Rachel's request is very puzzling. After all, Rachel forfeited being Jacob's sole wife by revealing to Leah the secret code under the canopy. And here, Leah tells her, was your taking my husband insignificant? As if it was Rachel who took Leah's husband, not vice versa. And I think what this reveals is something very, very incredible. Rachel, when she revealed the secret code to her sister Leah, she didn't reveal to her that really she was supposed to be the wife of Jacob. She conveyed it to her sister Leah, as if she was the messenger. Oh, Jacob wanted me to send you this secret code. That's what she told her. She never revealed to her. She never made her feel bad to say that, oh, you know, you're, you're the Johnny come lately. You're the second best option. Thus, in Leah's eyes, it's Rachel who was the one who took her husband, not that she took Rachel's husband. And this, I think, shows us the greatness of these women. First of all, it shows us incredibly how, how Rachel was able to not only forfeit her husband's soul attention and focus, but also that she never rubbed this in the face of Leah. Leah never knew what we know that really she was not intended for Jacob. That's number one. But this also shows us Leah's greatness, that she held out until now when Rachel Asks for the dudaim, she explodes. And she says, It was it not enough that you took my husband? Now you want to take even this from me? In her eyes, she was always the one who was intended for Jacob. And the fact that Jacob ended up marrying Rachel was her forfeiture of Jacob to her sister. And therefore she's so incredulous when Rachel is making this unwarranted request. And Rachel responds, Okay, in exchange for you giving me some of the dudaim, I am going to allow you to be with Jacob tonight. It was my night, and now you could have it instead. So Jacob returns from the field in the evening. Leah goes out to greet him, and she says, No, you're not spending the night with Rachel. He's spending the night with me because I have purchased it with my son's dudaim." And Jacob spends the night with her, and she becomes pregnant, has a fifth son, Yisachar, and eventually a sixth son too, Zevulun. Rashi tells us something very harsh, that because Rachel belittled spending the night with Jacob, she exchanged it for some plants, for some aphrodisiacs, therefore, as a result, she did not merit to be buried with him. The Torah is unfathomably harsh in its judgment of the righteous. Rachel was a little bit too flippant about what it means to spend the night with Jacob and she suffered eternal consequences by not being able to sleep with him, to be with him, to be buried next to him for eternity. And I think more broadly, this idea of resorting to natural means to have babies, whether or not these do dying were actually effective is a separate question. But regardless, it does show that they were doing whatever they can to have children, not just praying, it's effort plus prayer. That's the magic formula that we try to strike. After Leah has two more sons, she has a daughter whom she names Dina. Dina means judgment. Rashi explains that she made a judgment with herself. She had already six sons. Her sister Rachel had zero sons. And there is only two more sons left because they knew prophetically that Jacob was destined to have 12 sons. If she were to have a seventh son, then Jacob's sons would amount to 11 and there would be only one more son left for Rachel and she will have less sons of Jacob than the maidservant. And therefore she made this judgment that it's improper for her to have another son and she prayed And the son that she had inside of her turned into a female, which may help explain why Dina, this daughter of Jacob, may still have had some lingering male tendencies that got her into trouble later on in Genesis. And in verse 22, God remembered Rachel God listened to her, he opened her womb, she conceived and bore a son, and she said, Asaf Hashem has God took away my disgrace, so she named him Joseph, and also saying that God, may God add for me another son. After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Grant me my leave, let me go, let me go to my house, let me go to my land, give me my wives and my, ch- my children, I've done my time here. I want to leave. I want to go home. Rashi explains that Joseph is the flame to actualize the fire of Jacob. Jacob had a terrifying antagonist waiting for him at home, and that was Esau. Once Joseph is born, the power to overcome Esau is present, and therefore once Joseph is born, Immediately, Jacob begins his plan to head home. Now Laban doesn't want to lose Jacob and he says, no, I've been so successful thanks to you. Tell me exactly what you want. I'll give you whatever you want. Just stay here with me. Keep on working for me because you are the key to my prosperity. They eventually agree to a deal. Jacob's going to continue working for Laban but he's going to start earning assets that are going to be his to keep. They're going to remove all the speckled and spotted animals, and they'll keep only the white animals, the white sheep, but all animals that are born with speckles and with spots, i.e. all animals that buck the genetic trend, are going to be given to Jacob. Laban was thrilled with, with this suggestion, they remove all the reined and spotted and speckled goats. All Jacob has under his watch are the white animals. And Jacob outfoxes the wily Laban. He manipulates the breeding environment of these animals and they begin to all produce speckled and spotted animals. And eventually Laban gets sick and tired of that. He changes the terms again and again and again up to a hundred times. And regardless of what Laban does, Jacob becomes increasingly more wealthy and more prosperous. Chapter 31 begins. Jacob hears the words of Laban's sons. Everyone's starting to complain. Jacob has taken all that had belonged to our father. Now Jacob is wealthy and Laban's becoming poor. Jacob realizes that the conditions are not ideal for him to stay With Laban. In addition, the Almighty appears to Jacob and tells him, Return to the land of your fathers and to your native land, and I will be with you. So Jacob has four wives, 11 sons, one daughter, a tenuous relationship with his father in law, who's also his employer, tension that exists with him and his brothers in law, the brothers of Rachel and Leah. And God says to him, okay, it's time to go back to the land of Israel. How does he get his wives on board? So Jacob calls and summons Rachel and Led to the field. And he tells them, you know, things aren't great. I worked for your father with all my might, but your father mocked me. And he changed my wage a hundred times. But God did not permit him to harm me. Whatever laban tried to do to harm me god did not allow and god took your father's livestock and gave it to me but also god appeared to me in a dream and told me go back to the land of israel to your native land that's jacob's pitch to his wives rachel and leah and rachel and leah respond have we then a share and an inheritance in our father's house we're considered by our father to be like strangers he has sold us He's, he'll take away all that we have if he could. All the wealth that God gave you and, t- and took away from him really legitimately belongs to us. But ultimately, whatever God tells you to do, you should do. So this is a little bit of an unusual back and forth. If God tells you to go to the land of Israel, well, that's it. End of story. You know where you need to do. You have to go to the land of Israel. Yet when Jacob conveys the message to his wives, he begins by saying, it's a very hard environment for me here. And he outlines why it's very difficult. And only then does he drop the bomb and say, God tells me to leave. And in addition, when they respond, they too outline why it's not ideal for them. And then ultimately they tell him, whatever God has said to you to do, you should do. So in the last year's, version of the Parsha podcast, I spoke about this idea at great length, but here we see a concept of how we're supposed to overcome challenges. You know, to leave with such a family, with 12 children, four wives, all kinds of assets, to leave and move to a foreign land is very difficult. But God tells you to do it, you got to do it. However, you could use this tactic to overcome The difficulty, by minimizing the difficulty, by remembering, well, how good is it really over here? It's it's actually pretty difficult. And once you remember that, you're actually making it much easier for you to do what you need to do by minimizing the difficulty. So Jacob does that in his initial communication with his wives, and his wives respond with that as well. They minimize the difficulty, but ultimately, they want to do the will of God. So they agree upon a plan to gather all their stuff and to leave and escape from Laban to travel back to Isaac in the land of Canaan. Laban went to shear his sheep, and Rachel takes this opportunity to steal his idol, his Teraphim. And Jacob takes his whole family with all their possessions, and they escape without telling Laban. They start fleeing east in the direction of Mount Gilead. And eventually Laban finds out what happens. So he starts pursuing Jacob and his caravan. And eventually, after seven days, they catch up to them. And there's a standoff. Jacob with his whole family on one side, Laban with his contingency on the other side, and God appears to Laban in a dream and tells him, don't you speak with Jacob, not good, not bad, don't mess with Jacob. Eventually they meet, and Laban confronts Jacob. What have you done that you have deceived me and led my daughters away like captives of the sword? Why have you fled so stealthily and cheated me? You should have told me before you're going. I, we could have had a huge goodbye party. You didn't even allow me to kiss my children, my grandchildren. And also, he ends off his tirade, why did you steal my idol? So Jacob responds, and he tells him, well, I didn't tell you I was going, because I thought perhaps you might steal your daughters from me. And then on your second point, that I stole your god, no no one stole your God with whomever you find your gods he shall not live and of course Jacob did not know that Rachel indeed had stolen them and she she still had them and in fact Rashi tells us that because Jacob had cursed whomever was holding the idolatry that's the reason why Rachel would soon be dying so Laban, goes and starts looking. He goes into Jacob's tent, and into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the maidservants, and he's inspecting all the bags of Jacob and his family, and he does not find anything that belongs to him, nor his truffim, his idol. But Rachel still had it, but she managed to hide it underneath where she was sitting on the camel. Laban rummaged through the whole tent, found nothing, and she said to her father, don't be angry that I can't get up, I'm not feeling well, and therefore I have to stay on the camel, and she managed to keep its identity hidden. And Laban concludes his search and does not find his truffim, his idol. So there's a few interesting points here. First of all, why indeed did Rachel steal the truffim the idols so rashi tells us quoting from the midrash that the reason why she did it was noble she wanted to prevent her father from worshiping idols so what do you do you take away the idol it's a good thing she maybe should be commended She's like you have someone who's god forbid addicted to heroin well what is the responsible onlooker that wants to help the addict what do they do they take it away Or, God forbid, if there's someone who's suicidal, you take away the gun. It seems like Rachel did the right thing. But Jacob, in verse 32, curses whoever has it. Apparently, he didn't know that Rachel stole it. And as a result of that, Rashi tells us, Rachel died. So, two questions. First of all, how, indeed, can Rachel be punished for doing what seems to be the right thing? By removing her father's ability to worship the idol. That's question number one. Question number two, Jacob did not suspect that Rachel or maybe even someone else would do the right thing and take away the idol. Why does Jacob say so definitively, whoever has the idol is going to die? So I want to maybe suggest an answer. Jacob knew that someone may take the idol, but hopefully by the time they've traveled for seven days, they would have discarded it. Maybe you throw into a bush or into the river, but someone would have gotten rid of this dangerous contraband. And therefore, if you read the verses critically, Jacob only cursed the one who still has the idol in their possession, not who took it initially. Rachel did the right thing by taking it away from her father, but she made a mistake by harboring it and not getting rid of it. She did one thing right, and one thing wronged, taken away was good, retaining it was bad. And therefore, she became susceptible to the curse when Jacob says, whoever has the trough of the idol in their possession is going to die. She should have discarded it. It's very dangerous to walk around with an idol together with you uh, for easy access. After Laban comes up empty-handed, Jacob launches a legendary attack on his father-in-law, Laban. Verse 36, Then Jacob became angered, and he took up his grievance with Laban. Jacob spoke up and said to Laban, What is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? When you rummaged through all my things, what did you find of all your household objects? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, and let them decide between the two of us. For 20 years, I've been working for you. Your animals never miscarried. I never ate any of your animals from your flock. If an animal got injured, I absorbed the loss. If it was stolen, if it was injured, by day or by night, by day scorching, he consumed me. Frost, by night, I lost sleep over your animals. For 20 years, I've been in your household 14 years for your two daughters, six years for your flock. You changed my wage a hundred times. And if not for the fact that the Almighty was watching over me, I would have totally been empty-handed, have nothing to show for my 20 years of hard work for you. God saw my wretchedness and the toil of my hands, and he admonished you last night. Jacob levies a scathing attack on Laban for his egregious mistreatment of him. And Laban responds in verse 43, Then Laban spoke up and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flock is my flock. And all that you see is mine. Laban is completely unreasonable. There was no one to talk to. Jacob outlined logical arguments of why he was mistreated. And in a completely disingenuous way, Laban totally... Disregarded all of Jacob's arguments. The sons are mine. The daughters are mine. The flock is mine. Everything is mine. And we see sometimes that sometimes there's going to be a conflict, and one side is not willing to listen. And no matter what you say, no matter how clearly you outline your your arguments, no matter how clearly rational and intellectually sound they are, it doesn't matter if the other side is unwilling to listen, unwilling to hear. Now, no matter what you say, you may not be able to penetrate that. And Laban continues and proposes a truce, a treaty. Yet to my daughters, what could I do to them this day or to the children whom they have borne? So now come, let's make a covenant, I and you, and the Almighty should be a witness to me and you. They take a bunch of stones, they build a monument, they pledge to each other that neither of them will cross this DMZ to harm the other. They make a feast. They break bread. They spend the night together. And in the morning, Laban departs back to his homeland. He kisses his sons and his daughters. He blesses them. And Jacob continues along the way as he's about to arrive in the land of Israel. Angels appear to him. Now the angels of Israel are there to accompany him. He spent 20 years Together with Laban, he managed to survive and thrive under those very treacherous conditions. Now it's time for him to head back to Israel and to face the music with Esau, the brother, still hellbent on killing him. And their interaction is going to dominate the beginning of next week's Parsha, Parsha's Vayishlach.